Now, that brings us to the 11th chapter, and that's the last chapter in this division where we have these burdens that actually hinge on the first coming of Christ. And let me pass this on to you before I begin reading. The division of this chapter here and the title I've given to chapter 11 is the Lord Jesus Christ is to be rejected as the king at his first coming. Now, this section is dealt and hinged on the first coming of Christ. Now, we read here in verse 1 of this chapter, "...open thy doors, O Lebanon, that the fire may devour thy cedars." Well, that doesn't sound very promising. Well, frankly, this reveals that there is to be a scattering of these people even after the time of Zechariah. And again, that was, I think, performed by the Romans. Now, the Romans used the same method that Alexander the Great did. They came down from the north. I don't care to get into that in detail today, but up in Lebanon, if you go above Beirut, you come to a river that's known as the Dog River. That's a, not a very good name, and I don't know where it got that name. And they have there, right at the entrance by the sea, what they have labeled the calling cards of the nations of the world. Somebody started it in the past, and every great general of every great nation that went through there, he put up a monument that is carved in the rock there. And I've read, I mean, I've looked at it and had the translation given to me. I couldn't read the Persian or I didn't do too well with the Greek, but I finally figured that one out. All of the great generals came in through that direction because that's the beginning of what is known as the Big Rift. Now, that Big Rift moves inland. Now, you pick it up down in Palestine, right north, of the Sea of Galilee. And the Sea of Galilee is part of the Big Rift. So is the Jordan River. So is the Dead Sea. And that Big Rift goes right on into North Africa. Now, the generals of the past came down that route. And so here again, you see them coming into Lebanon. Open thy doors, O Lebanon, that the fire may devour thy cedars. Now, the cedars of Lebanon were famous. They were in the first temple use a great deal of the wood there. Evidently, Solomon's palace was built out of that. Now, it says, whale fir trees. And that means these very famous cedars of Lebanon. Now, those trees have largely disappeared, which is quite interesting. There are very few of them left. The nicest one that I've seen is actually in Herzl's Park right outside of Jerusalem. And it is a very beautiful tree. It's well taken care of. But the one I saw in Beirut itself, it was a scrongy sort of a tree, I thought, but had grown up very large. And the place where they do better is up in the snow country. In fact, Lebanon means white. And it has to do with the snow-covered mountains of Lebanon. And that great rift comes down right the other side of it. That's where Baalbek was built, over on the other side of those mountains. That was a tremendous passageway for the great world conquerors of the past, like Egypt and Babylon and Media Persia, Syria. 
and Greece, and then later on Rome. And I think we're having here the description of Rome coming down. Now, will you notice, whale fir trees, for the cedars fallen, because the mighty are spoiled. Whale, O ye oaks of Bashan. Now, Bashan is down in the northern part of Israel. And there were a lot of oaks that in that country. I think we call them live oaks today. O ye oaks of Bashan, for the forest of the vintage has come down. There is a voice of the wailing of the shepherds. Now, these were the false shepherds, for their glorious spoil. They had been, again, the false prophets, false shepherds. They had been giving wrong directions to the people. They had been giving them encouraging words. Now, he says, there is a voice of the wailing of the shepherds for their glorious spoil, a voice of the roaring of the young lions for the pride of Jordan is spoil. These young lions are the young princes. Thus saith the Lord, my God, feed the flock of the slaughter. The flock of the slaughter. That's almost terrifying. Whose possessors slay them and hold themselves not guilty. And they that sell them say, Blessed be the Lord, for I am rich, and their own shepherds pity them not. What a picture of what's going to happen to these people when the Romans come down. For I will no more pity the inhabitants of the land, saith the Lord, but lo, I will deliver the man, every one, into his neighbor's hand, the hand of his king, and they shall smite the land, and out of their hand I will not deliver them. Now, God says, I'm going to permit this to take place because you've not only turned from me, but you rejected the Messiah when he came. Now, we'll follow on in that next time and see that in this chapter. So until then, may God richly bless you, my beloved. Now, friends, we have seen that Zechariah has definitely been the prophet of hope. Actually, his name means the Lord remembers. It's quite interesting that he's one of the last voices in the Old Testament to speak for God. And the New Testament opens actually with the angel appearing to a man by the name of Zechariah, the husband of Elizabeth that gave birth to John the Baptist. And therefore, it seems like this word God remembers and this man here is a prophet of hope. But as also it's been called our attention that he's not only a prophet of hope, because that could be a false hope, and that's the thing the false prophets had done, had given them a false hope. Therefore, this man, he's the prophet of truth also. And he's emphasized this matter of truth. And this 11th chapter that we got into last time brings us up to the Roman period. And during that period, and even before it, the Maccabean period, there would be a very dark period. Now, verse 7 of chapter 11 of Zechariah opens with this language, "...and I will feed the flock of slaughter." Here we are again. Now, what we have here is something that actually is very difficult to interpret and this difference of opinion. Did this man, Zechariah, actually become a shepherd during this time? Because as you read on down, "...and I will feed the flock of slaughter, even you, O 
poor of the flock. And that little flock, that small group out of the twelve tribes said, Return. And he says, And I took unto me two staves. The one I called beauty, and the other I called bands, and I fed the flock. Now, this is quite interesting. Did he actually do this? Did he act this out? Or was this parabolic, or just a parable that he's giving? Now, I personally take the position that he acted this out, but it's a parable in action. And you find that there were several of the prophets that did that. We have seen before that Ezekiel did that. Now, you remember he went and locked himself in the house, and he came out digging a trench, and he came up in the street outside. Now, here in Pasadena, where I live, there's nothing new about digging up streets. I think now every street in the city has been dug up sometimes during the past year. But they may have missed one or two, but I doubt it. But in that day, it was unusual. And I'm of the opinion it'd be unusual today if somebody locked himself in his house and then came up in the street out there. Well, Ezekiel did that. And he had a message when he came up, and he also had a crowd. That was a good crowd getter. And I'm of the opinion that Zechariah, for this remnant, is doing the same thing. Now, we're told here, he takes two staves. Now, the one I call beauty, that's a shepherd's crook. It means grace. That's the one that the shepherd used to keep the little sheep in line. If they start to go out of the way, just reach out of that crook and pull them right back in. If they got in danger, it speaks of grace. In fact, it means that. He called it beauty, which really is graciousness or grace. And then the other I call bands. Now, that word here, where he says I call it bands, that's probably as good a translation as I think that we have anywhere. I call it bands. And it has to do with a covenant, the making of a covenant. Now, that speaks of another stick, if you let me use that common expression, just a plain stick that the shepherd also had. Now, that was a heavy stick, not like the crook of the shepherd. It was a heavy one. And he used that to beat off and fight off any animals. You remember David said when he was a shepherd boy, a lion came and he fought him off. And the bear came, and he fought him off. Now, a shepherd was constantly encountering wild beasts and even human beings that would try to steal the sheep. And he didn't mind using that heavy club. So that we have here beauty and bands are grace, and bands are covenant. Then I fed the flock. I think that he went through this literally. Now, he goes on to say here, Three shepherds also I cut off in one month. I think false prophets. And my soul loathed them, and their soul also abhorred me. Then said I, I will not feed you. That which dieth, let it die. And that which is to be cut off, let it be cut off, and let the rest eat every one the flesh of another. Now, we're going to find when we get to Malachi, Malachi is a tremendous prophecy, by the way. He really goes after that which is phony and false. You see, in that day, 
some stingy skin flint of a man that didn't even like to give a tent or bring animals for sacrifice, and he'd have an old sick cow. And so he'd tell his boys, let's rush him up to the temple, to the altar, and get him killed. We'll make him a sacrifice. And they'll say, my, look, he gave one of his prized cows there for a sacrifice. Yes, but it was an old sick cow, you see. And that is the thing that God is going to speak through Malachi, tell the people that it made him sick too from all for that sort of thing, and he really didn't accept it at all. Now, what he's saying here, that which is ready to die, you let it die. Don't slaughter it hurriedly and use it, because that is something that would not be right. In other words, he's calling them back to be honest and be clear-cut in their dealings. Now, verse 10, he says, "...and I took my staff, even beauty, and I cut it asunder." that I might break my covenant which I had made with all the people. Now, he took beauty, grace is being withdrawn. You see, God had made a covenant with these people that he would bless them, he put them in that land, and he would protect them. Now, they've disobeyed so much, and he has, by his grace, as he's made it very clear to us before, way back in the 10th chapter, verse 6, he said, for I have mercy upon them. Now, God was doing what he was going to do, not because they were worthy, they were not, or not because they were obedient, for they were not. They were actually disobedient. Now, there would come a time when God would withdraw his covenant. In other words, no longer would he deal with them in grace. No longer would he be gracious unto them. And we are told, verse 11, and it was broken in that day. So the poor of the flock that waited upon me knew that it was the word of the Lord. Now, the poor of the flock is the remnant, actually, of the remnant that obeyed God, that believed the word of God. May I say to you that the most fundamental, primary, and that which comes first for any believer is to believe the Word of God. That's primary. That's essential. If you don't believe that the Bible is the Word of God, you're just not ready to take off at all because that's the thing that has to be settled. That's the thing that has to be established. And so these people, they knew that it was the Word of the Lord. Now, they just didn't believe it. They knew it was the Word of the Lord. And I believe that that is the thing that God gives to those that start out maybe a little skeptical, maybe find certain things difficult to believe in the Bible. And I say I believe it's that way. I know it's that way because that's the way I came. And I now have reached the place where I don't believe it's the Word of God. I know it's the Word of God. It's the reason I don't waste my time preaching sermons. Now, I recognize those sermons are needed and thank the Lord for young preachers, because that's the area they always get in. I spent the first two or three years of my ministry proving the Bible was true. That was really, I think, a rather waste of time in many ways. We preach it, you know, that it is the Word of God. It's like the story I told you about Dr. Bob Schuler, who used to be the great 
Methodist preacher in downtown Los Angeles. He told me this personally, and it's an illustration he used. He said, you know that if you have a lion in a cage and you keep him at home, you wouldn't employ a guard to stay at the door of the lion cage to protect the lion from the pussycats in the neighborhood. You don't need that. All you want to do is to open the door of the lion cage and the lion will take care of himself. And I've attempted to follow that. I think that's a great illustration. I just attempt to open the door of the Word of God and let it take care of itself. It'll take care of itself. You don't have to protect the Bible from the pussycats that are in the neighborhood. Just give out the Word of the Lord. Now, this remnant believed it was the Word of the Lord. But there was coming in their line now one who would be their Messiah. And for the most part, they would reject him. A very small remnant would receive him at the time that he came. And for that, the nation would be judged and sent into captivity. And we're going to see that. Now, notice what he says here in verse 12. And I said unto them, If ye think good, give me my price, and if not, forbear. And that is quite interesting that they didn't want to pay very much. I wonder Judas had a little difficulty agreeing on the price, because we're told here, so they weighed for my price 30 pieces of silver. Now, isn't that a, a remarkable thing? Because we're dealing with a passage of Scripture, again, that has been literally fulfilled and in a most remarkable way. And I want you to see, for instance, look with me at Matthew 26, verse 15, and let me read it. And he said unto them, One of the twelve, called Judas Iscariot, went unto the chief priests. That's verse 14. Now 15, And said unto them, What will ye give me? And I will deliver him unto you. And they covenanted with him for thirty pieces of silver. Isn't that interesting? You see, it's Zechariah that mentions that. Now, if you go over to the 27th chapter of Matthew, you find something quite interesting here in the ninth and 10th verses. Then was fulfilled that which was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, They took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him that was valued, whom they of the children of Israel did value, and gave them for the potter's field as the Lord appointed. Now, Jeremiah had a great deal to say about the potter's field in Jeremiah 18 and 19. And I have a book, you remember, on that, The Potter and the Clay. Is this little book that I have, and many of you already have that because we gave it out or sent it out when we were in Jeremiah. And we would repeat that if any of you would care to have that. Now, notice what he says in verse 13. And the Lord said unto me, Cast it unto the potter of lordly price. Now, that is the way that that is given to us here in the New Schofield Bible, a lordly price. Well, I'm of the opinion that they've really improved by using this word, but I think that we can get a better one. 
a fancy price. You've heard the expression, well, that's a fancy price for a certain article. Well, a fancy price that I was prized out of them. They didn't care much for it. Thirty pieces of silver. Imagine that. They paid very little for Jesus. They weren't willing to pay a high ransom price of several million dollars to have him delivered to them. No, they were only willing to pay 30 pieces of silver. How cheap that was. And what did Judas do with it? He threw it down in the sanctuary. And actually here, cast it unto the potter. Well, there's been some discussion as to just what was meant there. Some even think that it should be translated, cast it to the treasure. Well, Judas came into the temple and he threw it down there. Now, they wouldn't take it. They said it's the price of blood. And isn't it interesting? They went out and they bought the potter's field. And now, friends, this is no accident that we're talking about here. And I think this is one of the most remarkable passages of Scripture that we have. What we have here is this. What was the potter's field? You remember Jeremiah? What he had to say about the potter's field? And Matthew referred them to Jeremiah, you see, when they gave that cheap price for him. And Judas, you remember, threw it down. He wouldn't take it. I betrayed innocent blood. And it was used to buy the potter's field. And again, I asked the question, what is the potter's field? Well, quite interestingly, the potter's field was the place where the potters, when they attempt to make a vessel or a vase or a vase, whichever it was they were making, and it didn't yield to them on the potter's field and broke up and a piece came off or it wouldn't yield and bend where they want, they'd just take it and throw that clay away because it wasn't the right texture to be molded, you see. And Jeremiah gives that as a picture of God. God puts mankind mud on the potter's wheel, and he forms and fashions, but that clay has to yield to him. And the clay that won't yield to him, why, it's put in the potter's field. They just throw it out. It's not to be used. Isn't it interesting that the price of Christ was 30 pieces of silver, and they took the 30 pieces of silver. They were very pious about it. Why, they said, that's a price of blood. We couldn't turn that to religious purposes, so they took it out and bought the potter's field, and that's where they bury the poor. You know, the Lord Jesus has been working in the potter's field a long, long time. He purchased that, but he didn't purchase it for 30 pieces of silver. He paid the price, not with even silver or gold, but the precious blood of Christ was paid that he might buy this old world you and I lived in, filled with broken pottery. That's mankind. Oh, the broken pieces today of mankind, broken physically, broken mentally, broken morally, broken spiritually, broken in many different places and in many different ways. And the potter, is the Lord Jesus, and he's taken them. And what was thrown away, he can take it and mold it in a vessel that'll be for honor to him. 
Oh, what a picture is here. And it's in Zechariah. Even in his rejection, not worthy of just a potter's field, but he can work in a potter's field. Now, will you notice, he says here, verse 14, Then I cut asunder mine other staff, even bands, that I might break the brotherhood between Judah and Israel. Now, God says, when you sold me, when you got rid of me, when you turned me over into the hands of Gentiles to be crucified, I broke my covenant. Titus the Roman will soon be here, and you're going to be scattered throughout the world because their Messiah had come. He died for their sin. And ever since then, he's been working. The Lord Jesus has been working in the potter's field. What a picture. Now let me move on down. And the Lord said unto me, Take unto thee yet the instruments of a foolish shepherd. Now this is a picture of Antichrist that is to come. For lo, I will raise up a shepherd in the land. Who shall not visit those that are cut off? Neither shall seek the young one, nor heal that which is broken, nor feed that which standeth still. But he shall eat the flesh of the fat and tear their claws in pieces. Very frankly, what we have here in the 11th chapter, the first part of it presents the good shepherd of the sheep. The good shepherd that gives his life for the sheep, sold for 30 pieces of silver over to the people and then delivered into the Roman government who put him on a cross. But that cross became a place of redemption. It became the brazen altar of God where the Lamb of God was offered that taketh away the sin of the world. He was the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. We had that in the first section. Now we are presented with the foolish shepherd. And this foolish shepherd is not coming until later, much later than the first shepherd. Why? Because there is an interval that takes place that Zechariah very candidly is not concerned with at all. He's prophesying to a remnant of people that returned. And if you think that he had in mind the church of the 20th century, may I say to you, I think you're way off base. Because actually, there is an interval here, and the foolish shepherd will be coming after God completes his purpose in the church and turns again to these people. And I read verse 15 again, and this section rather hurriedly. The Lord said unto me, Take unto thee yet the instruments of a foolish shepherd. For lo, I'll raise up a shepherd in the land who shall not visit those that are cut off. Neither shall seek the young one, nor heal that which is broken, nor feed that which standeth still. But he shall eat the flesh of the fat and tear their claws in pieces. Well, he'll share the sheep and kill them for food. But he himself will not be a shepherd to the sheep. That one that's coming is the Antichrist. The Lord Jesus says, I've come in my Father's name. You would not have me. You rejected me. But if there come one in his own name, him ye will receive. And very frankly, I thought in the beginning of my ministry that we must be far from that because... 
you didn't have the climate in the world or the psychological background for the appearance of a man like that. But we've come a long ways since I was a young minister. And today, as I look about me, I think the world's right for him. I don't mean that I think that he's coming shortly, because I do not know that. Only God knows that. But I am confident of this, that any false shepherd that appears today, if a man appeared on the scene today that had the credentials, and the Antichrist will have them, that he could bring peace in the world and bring out of this chaos that we're in today, he could bring a cosmos, he could bring order, and that he could bring prosperity to the world. Do you think the world today would ask whether he came from heaven or hell? I don't think they'd care, because they take just about anything today, and that's true of every country. Right now, the world is not blessed with great leaders, and certainly our nation is not. So we're ready for the man when he comes. That doesn't mean he's coming tomorrow. Maybe a long time off. But we have the climate for it today, which we didn't have when I first began in the ministry. And God says he's going to be one that's really going to take the world for a ride. He'll be the great deceiver. He'll present the big lie, and the world is ready for it. Verse 17, now here he is. Woe to the idle shepherd. That is the thing that he calls him here. Woe to the worthless shepherd. He's no good. He's of no value. Because why? Let me give you Dr. Unger's translation. And Dr. Unger's quite a Hebrew scholar. And I follow men of this caliber. Woe, worthless shepherd, forsaker of the flock. Let the sword be against his arm and against his right eye. His arm shall be completely dried up and his right eye shall be completely blind. Now, he's a worthless shepherd. Why in the world is he? And the word woe here is that word in the Hebrew, oi, 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 oi. And it itself is a word that denotes trouble that is coming. And this shepherd is of no benefit, but believe me, the world will go after him. And so Israel's rejection of the good shepherd that's promised, when they rejected him, then they were scattered worldwide, and then this gospel that the Lord Jesus said would begin at Jerusalem and go to the end of the world is being preached today. And I very frankly believe that through radio we're going to be enabled to get the gospel to the end of the world today. It looks to me like that that's the direction that we're moving at the present moment. But in that interval of getting it to the end of the earth, it will be a long period. It's already been 1,900 years. Then there will come along this false shepherd. He's a worthless shepherd, but he's going to promise everything. He's going to be the supreme politician. He's going to promise everything that's in the book and out of the book. Woe to the worthless shepherd that leaveth the flock, The sword shall be upon his arm, upon his right eye. His arm shall be completely dried up, and his right eye shall be utterly darkened. Now, what does that mean? Well, he used his eye not to keep an eye on the sheep to protect him. 
just an eye on him to see which one was the fattest that he could use. And then there was his arm. That arm should have been used for the protection of the sheep, to use the shepherd's crook and protect them. But he didn't do that. He exposed them. He didn't watch over them at all. And now judgment comes upon his right eye and his arm, that which should have been used in behalf of the sheep. God will judge that false shepherd, Antichrist, and we are fine that he's going to make it to the lake of fire even before the devil gets that. Read the 19th, 20th, 21st chapters, book of Revelation. We're going to be there shortly. Maybe you should wait, and we'll see it when we get to it. Now, this is that false shepherd. Now, again, this false shepherd is going to be connected with a period that's coming upon the nation Israel in the future. Because you see, there is coming the great tribulation period. The Antichrist will actually be the one that brings in the great tribulation in all of its fury, because he'll be discovered. But by that time, he's a world dictator, and you'll find that the armies of the world are coming against Jerusalem. So now in chapter 12 that we've come to, we have the prophetic aspects that are connected with the second coming of Christ. And we have here the final siege of Jerusalem and the lifting of that siege. That's chapter 12. Now in this chapter, Jerusalem is mentioned ten times. In that day is mentioned seven times. And these two really occur again and again. And actually, this is a mention of the day of the Lord that begins here with the great tribulation period, and it eventuates and goes into the millennial kingdom that the Lord Jesus will usher in when he comes. You see, the Antichrist brings in the great tribulation. The Lord Jesus brings in the millennium. And in that day that occurs seven times here, and we'll note it as we move along in this particular section. Now, I want us to look at that expression, in that day, and Jerusalem here, as we get into the chapter, because it has to do with that. Now, I want to spend again just a little time talking about the day of the Lord though I have dealt with that a great deal in the Minor Prophets. But we have not exhausted the subject, I can assure you. And there's so much confusion today. Even as far back as 1951, I was in several summer conferences, and I was identified and associated with other ministers there, other Bible teachers. And that summer, I heard two of these men present a very hazy an indefinite and uncertain view of the day of the Lord. One of these men was specific, and he was very clear and accurate, that is, from my viewpoint and my judgment. But it occurred to me, even at that time, that if the pulpit is so fuzzy and foggy on this subject, what about the pew? Is there a clear-cut understanding of what the day of the Lord is? And what do you think of? when you hear the expression, the day of the Lord. What do you think of? Is it clear in your own mind, even those of you that have been going through the Bible with us? Do you have a definite conception 
Does it register? Does it click? Or is it just some nebulous and incoherent expression or phrase that just sort of like an umbrella, you can put it down over a great many things? And it can mean most anything to you. Sort of like the word glory. You hear people use the word glory. What does it mean to you? And there are people that say amen to something. What do they mean by it? Sort of like the Englishman, you know. He went into a restaurant in this country, and he'd just been over here a short time. And he asked the waitress, he says, what kind of soup do you have? And she started out by saying, well, we have beans. And he stopped her immediately. He says, I don't care where you've been. I want to know what kind of soup you have. And then the preacher in the South years ago, and I think this is a great one, they had a business meeting, and he said, now we're going to call on the treasurer to present his report and let us know what the status quo of the church is. So one of the deacons got up. He says, Mr. Preacher, he says, I think you ought to explain to us what the status quo is. And he got up, he says, well, that's the Latin for the mess we are in. Well, friends, may I say to you, these expressions can mean different things to different people. Now, what does the day of the Lord mean? Well, it's an important expression. Actually, it occurs 18 times in Zechariah alone. And we've seen it in both the major and minor prophets. And Joel... Well, that's the theme of his book. Malachi, that we're coming to next, he speaks of the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. In one sense, it's a theme of the Old Testament, one of the most important themes. And we want to break it down now, which I'd like to do. A day. What do you mean by day? And let's understand clearly, he's not talking about the Lord's day. The day of the Lord and the Lord's day are two different things. It's just like a chestnut horse and a horse chestnut. It's just like anti-fat and fat ante. They're two different things. The Lord's day and the day of the Lord are two different things. And it's not a 24-hour day. Peter says, But, beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, thousand years is one day. Now, the events that the prophets include in the day of the Lord preclude the possibility of their happening in a 24-hour day. In fact, the tremendous things that will take place in the Great Tribulation have made some men actually reject it and ridicule that viewpoint because they say you couldn't have that many crisis events in that brief time. Well, that was before we got, actually, to the 20th century. And U.S. News and World Report took the 10 years beginning with 1960 and the crisis events that took place in that brief period of time. And I don't think God will have any problem with it because I tell you there is a tremendous speeding up of crisis in the world today. Now, the day of the Lord is a period of time. It includes the great tribulation period and the millennial kingdom, which means that it's over a thousand years. Now, has the day of the Lord come? Are we living in it? Well, the Old Testament closes with that day still in the future. 
and the Old Testament pointed on to, and the New Testament still anticipated it. Paul, you'll recall, in 1 Thessalonians, he makes it very clear that it was still in the future as far as he was concerned. For he wrote in 1 Thessalonians 5, 2, For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. It had not come up to Paul, apparently, and there's nothing happened since then that would indicate that it has come. Now, the character of the day of the Lord, it's a good day and it's a bad day. It's sort of like we've heard in recent months, I've got good news for you and I've got bad news for you. Well, the thing is that the good news and bad news can come in one message. It's like that pilot on an Italian plane. He came on the air and he introduced himself. He says, we welcome you aboard the certain flight. He says, now I have some good news for you and I have some bad news for you. And he says, first of all, I'll give you the bad news. He says, we've lost contact with the ground. Our entire radar has gone out and we have no radio contact. In fact, we don't know now where we are. That's the bad news. Now he says, for the good news, he says, we're making good time. Well, may I say to you that the day of the Lord is good news and bad news. The bad news first, the great tribulation. The good news next, the millennial kingdom. And both features are going to be emphasized now, beginning here in the 12th chapter. Zechariah will emphasize them. He'll give you the bad news. In verse 2, he says, Behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of trembling unto all the peoples round about, when they shall be in the siege, both against Judah and Jerusalem. And in that day will I make Jerusalem a burdensome stone for all peoples. All that burden themselves with it shall be cut in pieces, though all the nations of the earth be gathered together against it. Now, that's the bad news. Well, there's some good news coming. Because you go over to the 14th chapter, verse 8, "...and it shall be in that day that living waters shall go out from Jerusalem," and so on. Good news is coming also. Bad news, good news. Now, in the 12th chapter, we're going to be dealing with the bad news. Now, here we have the final siege of Jerusalem and the lifting of that siege. Now, we're in a very important section as we come here to the 12th chapter of Zechariah for several reasons. The primary reason that this is such an important section, number one, is that we must fit these prophecies into a program because it's quite obvious that Zechariah is presenting a program here. In the 11th chapter, he first showed us that the true shepherd, the one that gave his life for the sheep, he's rejected. And the fact sold for 30 pieces of silver. How cheap. But our redemption was not purchased with silver or gold, but the precious blood of Christ. And what a cheap price he was sold for in that day. And we have that. The true shepherd is rejected. Then there comes along the worthless shepherd. Now, that shepherd we identified as being the Antichrist. 
that after the church is removed, after this interval in which the true shepherd is being presented to the world as the one who gave his life for the sheep, why, we come now to the time when the worthless shepherd will present himself and he will be accepted and he brings in the great tribulation, not the millennium. And we find that Jerusalem, which is to become the capital of the earth where Jesus will reign someday in the millennium, why, we find this city under attack by Antichrist and how it will be delivered. Therefore, that makes this important. Now, the second reason that this section is so important that this prophetic area right through here is rejected more today by the expositors, even some so-called conservative expositors. They won't face up to it that you have a panoramic program presented here of God's purposes with this world and Israel in the future. It's a sad thing to say, but it's true. And then we have some men that are certainly called fundamentalists, but they border on the sensational, and they lift certain statements out of this section here, which I don't think you can do. I don't think it's honest to just lift out a passage and try to fit it into today when it has to do with the future. It's in this program that he's presenting. Now, we have, therefore, the great tribulation presented to us and Jerusalem under siege. And this is the time that Jeremiah called it, the time of Jacob's trouble. And Daniel wrote concerning it in the 12th chapter of Daniel. And by the way, the reference in Jeremiah is the 30th chapter, and you ought to read all of that section, especially verses 5 through 7. And Daniel in the 12th chapter, verse 1, wrote, "...a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation even to that same time." And the Lord Jesus himself spoke of this. He identified it. He himself labeled it the Great Tribulation. He said there had been nothing like it before, there would be nothing like it afterward, and except those days were shortened, no flesh would survive. All right, you have here the description of that particular period that's given to us, and it's presented to us like this. Verse 1 now, chapter 12 of Zechariah, "...the burden of the word of the Lord for Israel, saith the Lord." Now, you notice all the way through here, especially in this section that is rejected today, you have a particular emphasis upon the statement of Zechariah again and again that he's not giving you his idea, but this is what thus saith the Lord. This comes directly from God. And when you reject this, you are not a higher critic with a little superficial knowledge, and you are able to make certain very intellectual statements and say you don't believe this and you don't believe that. But my friend Zechariah says here that this is the word of the Lord. Now, he's either accurate, either means what he says, or he is a liar. There's no between. 
And when you reject it, and I don't care who you are, you've made this man a liar. And you know what? I don't think he's a liar. I think you are, if you reject this. Now, there's a program presented. Now, it's the burden of the word of the Lord for Israel. It's the burden of the word. It's a prophecy. It is a judgment. And it goes on, saith the Lord. It's the word of the Lord, saith the Lord. Now, that certainly is coming down hard on this. But notice he's not even through with it. He says, "...who stretcheth forth the heavens, and layeth the foundation of the earth, and formeth the spirit of man within him." Now, there are here three great statements. And these three great statements give to us a sublime description of God as the Creator of this universe and of everything that is in it. It's a tremendous statement that we have here. It's an overwhelming statement. Now, first of all, he says, He's the one that stretcheth forth the heavens. Some have said the heavens declare the glory of God. And all of that above us, that declares His glory. And it shows His handiwork. And it's being stretched out several years ago, quite a few years now. Sir James Jeans, an astronomer in England, advanced a theory that I think has been pretty well accepted among astronomers as far as I understand. And that is that this universe is expanding. And he wrote the book, This Expanding Universe. And I understand he was a Christian, by the way. And that this universe, even since I've been talking today, is probably several million miles bigger than it was when we started. That's really stretching things. And there's no stretch like this. Well, I want to tell you that you and I are living in a universe where these tremendous creations of God are moving away from each other, and they're streaking across the universe. He stretcheth forth the heavens. How great God is! And he layeth the foundation of the earth. Now, he's taken particular attention, he's given actually, to this little earth that we live on. And today, man just can't be satisfied that he lives in a universe that he's the only human being that's around. And so we've been sending out missiles, guided missiles, not to another nation, but out to these other worlds. And we're not bugging them with taping anything they might say, but we're sure looking in their front window to see if they might be there. And there's been nobody there. It's God who laid the foundation of this earth. And then the most remarkable thing, he formeth the spirit of man within him. Man's a little different creation than anything that's on this earth. He's above anything that's on this earth. But he's not up to the created intelligences that we call angels. And I think the universe today is filled with God's created intelligences. I don't mean that they're the man from Mars. They're finding out now Mars is a place if you lived, you'd want to be moving right away. And you and I are living in a universe where it looks like 
it's not inhabited. But I don't think God has a vacancy sign hanging out anywhere, and I think you move out of our solar system that you'll find God's created intelligences are in this universe. They are spiritual creatures, and our cameras are not apt to pick up any of them, I can assure you. What a glorious picture this gives of God as the Creator. Man, years ago, that were called deists, believed that there was a Creator. They were none of them evolutionists, and that God created the universe, and that he went off and left it. He just forgot about it. He wound it up, started it off, and then he walked off. They were called deists. Well, this verse reveals that God didn't walk off and leave it, that God actually is imminent in his universe, as well as being outside of it. And it reveals that there is the great activity of God, not only out yonder in the heavens, that's great, of course, tremendous, as he's moving this great universe that we're in. And you talk about filled with energy. You and I are living in a universe that's filled with energy. It's man that's depleted the energy on this little world that we live on. I don't think God put but just enough of it down here to last us until he's ready to move in and take it over again. It looks like our filling station is running out of gas, the one we live on down here. That's another reason I think we're moving to the end of this age. Now, we find that God is working with a very definite and positive action as far as this universe is concerned. And he is the one, therefore, that has formed the spirit of man. He is our omnipotent, all-powerful, omniscient, all-knowing God. He is wisdom and knowledge. May I say to you that this has been called one of the most magnificent eschatological vistas to be found in the Word of God here. And yet it is disbelieved today by even a great many who call themselves conservative or evangelical. That's a word that covers a multitude of sins also. Now, will you notice, he says, verse 2, "...behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of trembling unto all the peoples round about when they shall be in the siege, both against Judah and Jerusalem." Now, here we go, and here we have mentioned in just one verse, Jerusalem twice. And as we indicated last time, Jerusalem is mentioned ten times in this chapter. And here we have Jerusalem becoming the very center of the activity that will take place when Antichrist takes over. And it becomes the center of attack and judgment. And he says here, I'll make it a cup. And this thing's a little bigger than a cup, by the way. And I think that probably the better word that we could use is probably a bowl or a goblet, or a mug, or something like that. Because God says, I'll make it a bowl of trembling unto all peoples round about when they shall be in the siege both against Judah and against Jerusalem. Now, let's identify this. When will that take place? Well, it'll take place when they shall be in the siege 
both against Judah and Jerusalem. When? In the last days, in the time the Lord Jesus called the Great Tribulation period. So the interpretation of this entire section is not for today. Now, it's going to have a message for us today, and I think a tremendous lesson for us also. And we need to understand here that God will make Jerusalem a goblet of intoxication for those that are concerning themselves with it. They'll be staggering because of it. And we're told here that he will make it a goblet of staggering, and all those lifting it shall grievously injure themselves. You're going to get hurt fooling with Jerusalem, God says. Now, verse 3, And in that day will I make Jerusalem, and apparently we're talking about Jerusalem. And this hasn't anything in the world to do with Rome or Paris or London or Washington or New York or Los Angeles or your town. When he says Jerusalem and he has to say it even ten times, and somehow or another that doesn't get through to even some of the commentators don't quite get the message. Jerusalem means Jerusalem, and when he puts Judah with it here, you can't miss it. And this just doesn't mean Jerusalem, California, and it doesn't happen to be a place like that, although we used to have a place, and I think it's still in existence, called the Holy City. Last time I went through that, they had a bar room in the Holy City. Well, Anyway, he's not talking about that one in California. He's talking about Jerusalem that's in Judah. Now, he says here that he will make Jerusalem a burdensome stone for all people. Now, that seems strange, doesn't it? It's a rather isolated place, has been now, old city, and actually not very attractive today. It's the fact that it has so many places that are to us, sacred today and meaningful. And I know a lot of places I like better than I like Jerusalem. I always enjoy staying there. Why? Well, so many things for you to see that are identified with the Bible. But why should this place be so prominent in the last days? How can you figure that out? Well, if you want to figure it out, may I say this? That that city has become a burdensome stone today. It caused the Arabs to turn off the oil spigots. And they said, you can't have any more oil. And do you know what happened? That practically every nation in Europe turned their back on Jerusalem, including Japan and the others. And we were very much left alone in this matter of giving support to that little nation. And they would have gone in under it became a burdensome stone, let me tell you, even in our day. But don't misunderstand, that was not the fulfillment of prophecy. It's nonsense to talk like that. This fits in a program that's ahead. But God just wants you to know that he was not making an exaggerated statement when Jerusalem can become a burdensome stone. And I think what we've seen is nothing compared of what it will be in that day. It'll cause the nations of the world. It almost broke up the common market. It almost wrecked NATO. Why? Jerusalem became a burdensome stone. And if you want to go down the list of the nations of the world 
that have captured that city and tried to rule it, including Great Britain, when General Allen took Jerusalem and delivered it from the Turks, Great Britain was the number one power, and the sun never set on the British Empire. But my friend, the British Empire set today. It went down because they got involved in that city. And I frankly hope we don't get too involved. God says, keep hands off. I'm the one running that place. That seems to be one place that he's still running things. Now, will you notice, he says, verse 4 and verse 3, we had it, in that day. And this is going to get monotonous before you get through with it. Will you notice, he says, in that day, saith the Lord, I will smite every horse with terror, his rider with madness, and I'll open mine eyes upon the house of Judah, and I'll smite every horse, the people with blindness. In other words, when the enemy comes against them, God's going to deliver them. Because when the enemy comes, the horse represents warfare. And when a horse goes blind and the rider is mad, I tell you, you're certainly going to have confusion. And the governors of Judah shall say in their heart, the inhabitants of Jerusalem shall be my strength in the Lord of hosts their God. And Jerusalem at that day will become a refuge for God's people on the earth. Now, you find that there comes down on Jerusalem, and as we come to the second burden here, a second judgment that begins with chapter 12, it has to do with the second coming of Christ, we find Jerusalem under siege. And this is the result of the activity of Antichrist, and they've come in, the enemy, from every direction. Now, God will intervene in their behalf. God would assist them at that time. And you're going to raise the question, well, why in the world does he intervene on their behalf because they have rejected him? Well, we'll see why in just a few moments. Now, I'm going to read verse 6. He says, "...in that day will I make the governors of Judah like a hearth of fire among the wood, and like a torch of fire in a sheep, and they shall devour all the peoples round about." on the right hand and on the left. And Jerusalem shall be inhabited again in her own place, even in Jerusalem. And again, I remind you, we're talking about Jerusalem. We're not talking about Rome or Washington or Geneva, Switzerland, or any place like that. We're talking about Jerusalem, and it's a geographical spot over there in Judah, and he's already identified Judah and Jerusalem together, and he'll be doing it again in this next verse. Verse 7, "...the Lord also shall save the tents of Judah first, that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem do not magnify themselves against Judah." In other words, they would be looking down, as it were, on the rest of the country. I'm of the opinion that people today in one section have a tendency to look down on people from other sections of the country. I have been very much amused at the reaction people get to my accent. And many, very frankly, write letters, and they start in by saying, I started listening to you, and... I thought you were just some wild-eyed ignoramus. Well, there's some people still think that. 
But anyway, these folks kept lessening, and we saw beyond that accent, you had been to school. You had at least finished the sixth grade. But anyway, the point that I'm trying to make is our tendency is the tendency of all of us. We folk who've been born in Texas, we've been given the impression that there was nothing beyond the borders of Texas, that it just happened to be the place, you know. And the chosen were in Texas. And there's some of my fellow Texans that still believe that. And that is human nature. Now, if the Lord manifested himself first to Jerusalem and to the house of David, then they would look down on the rest of Judah. They'd say, these are country rubes, hillbillies. After all, the Lord didn't manifest himself to them first. God says, I'm going to choose them first. And you remember that the Lord Jesus had something to say about the first will be last, and the last will be first. I think that one of the... Well, we're going to get many shocks when we get to heaven. I think one of the greatest surprises and shocks we're going to get, we're going to find that there are people up there we didn't think were going to be there, and there are going to be some missing that we thought were going to be there. That's number one. And then we're going to find out, really, who are the people that God had really recognized as being those that were his servants and were doing faithfully what he wanted done. And it's not what we think down here at all. I think we're going to get a shock. And God makes it clear now to these people, I'm going to manifest myself to Judah first. And that'll give Jerusalem and the house of David something to think about. Now, in verse 8, In that day shall the Lord defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And he that is feeble among them at that day shall be like David. David was quite a soldier. And if you don't believe that, why, read the account concerning his own son Absalom. Read the account of how he took that nation all scattered and divided and brought it together and how he dealt with the Philistines. David was a great administrator, a great soldier, a general, great at strategy, a man of tremendous ability. And he says, now in that day, every man, the weakest, will be just like David, and David shall be like God. And to me, that's one of the most thrilling statements you can have. David will be like God. May I say to you, you want to know something? There came one in David's line who is God. David's going to be like God. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ, who was born to Mary of the household of David. He was born in Bethlehem because she went down there to be enrolled. She belonged to the house of David. Joseph had to be enrolled. He was the house of David. But he had nothing to do with the birth of the Lord Jesus. And so they went down there. And he was born in the family of David. And we're told this is the book of the generation of Jesus Christ. That's the way the New Testament opened. Born of whom? Of David. That's mentioned first in the New Testament. And also goes back to Abraham. But David is mentioned first. And here you have it. Now we are told, verse 9, And it shall come to pass in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. Now, there will be a converging of all the nations. We're going to see that in a great deal of detail when we get to the book of Revelation. 
And all of these great prophecies are like trains or planes coming into a station or an airport. All of these great themes of prophecy that originate elsewhere in the Bible, they come into the book of Revelation like a great airport or like a union station. They all converge in that book, and we'll see that when we get to that place. Now, there is coming against Jerusalem in that day the enemy from the outside. Now, why is God going to protect them, and why is God going to deliver them? Well, we have the reason given here, and that's in verse 10. He says, "...and I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplications, and they shall look upon me." whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son, and shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. Now, this is another reason why I do not believe the present return to that land is a fulfillment of any prophecy of Scripture, because The Scripture makes it very clear, not only here, but Joel has this, that God is going to pour out upon them the Spirit of grace. That is, the Holy Spirit. And he'll pour out the Holy Spirit upon these people during this period. And because of that, this effusion of the Holy Spirit that's come upon them, and they are now his witnesses, and you find that he protects them, in the Great Tribulation period, because we have that pause that's given in order for the angels to seal 144,000 of these people. Now, that 144,000 means the people that we understand as Israel that live in that land, not any people today that just arbitrarily claim it for themselves without any basis at all. This has to rest upon facts. And book of Revelation makes it very clear, 12,000 out of each tribe. And if you're going to claim to be one of the 144,000, then you can be sure of one thing, you're not saved today. Because if the rapture took place, you'd not leave the earth and you'd go into that period when they're sealed for the great tribulation period. And it doesn't mean any group today, but it does mean these people. And you'll find another group was sealed. I do not know the number because it was such a large number, it's not even given to us, of Gentiles that are to be sealed during that period, and they are going through the great tribulation, and they will stand for God during that period. Now, the church has been removed. The Holy Spirit, as I understand it, doesn't leave the earth. He now returns to what he was doing before the day of Pentecost. That is, he would come upon certain of these people. Now there is a pouring out of the Spirit upon them. And I'm of the opinion that the remnant that will be back in that land. Now, I don't think that what's happened over there today since they became a nation in 1948, that there's been any time that you could say there's been the pouring out of the Spirit of God. Now, when that takes place, they are going to recognize Christ as their Savior. 
and they shall look upon me whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for him. Now, that's going to be the fulfillment of the great day of atonement when they are going to look upon him. Now, chapter 13 is going to develop this a great deal for us. It's going to open. In that day there shall be a fountain open to the house of David, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness. And then if you drop down to verse 6, you'll find, "...and one shall say unto him, What are these wounds in thine hands?" And he shall answer, Those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. Now, they are going in that day to look upon him whom they've pierced. And that question will be asked of him. There'll be one that'll say, Look, what do these wounds mean? We didn't expect our Messiah, our King, to come with these wounds that you have in your hands and feet and in your side. And he's going to say to them, well, I got those in the house of my friends. And then he's going to say at that particular time, I came before, you didn't accept me or receive me. Now I've come back. Now they begin to mourn because of that. And he still calls them friends, just as he did Judas, you remember. He called Judas even after he betrayed him. Wherefore art thou come? Friend? Calls him friend. Now, we find that we have very definitely this verse quoted in the New Testament. I would recommend that, in fact, verse 7, where it says, "...smite the shepherd." And that's in Matthew 26, verse 31 through 67, Mark 14, 27, 65. But I'll get to that when we get to the next chapter. It'll be important when we get there. Now he says here, and the explanation is given, why is he going to defend Jerusalem? He's poured out the Spirit of grace upon them. And my friend, that's the only way today that you and I are indwelt by the Spirit of God. You don't have to seek and groan and grunt and think you become a super-duper saint in order to have the Holy Spirit. All you have to do is to come as a sinner to Jesus Christ and accept and receive Him as your Savior. Then you're indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God today. Why, Paul could write to the Corinthians. He called them babies. He called them carnal. He called them fleshly. In fact, he had very little to say that was good about those people there. And yet, he could say to them, What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? He's the Spirit of grace. He doesn't indwell me or fill me because I'm super-duper or I'm a little ahead of somebody else. I'm not. I'm way behind most. It's because of his grace that he does these things. And that's the way he's going to do it for these people. And since he's been so gracious to me, I'm not going to object to him being gracious to these people either. And they're going to know him when the veil is lifted from their eyes, as Paul has said. But that doesn't mean they're not responsible. Anytime any one of them, his heart will turn to Christ. Why, Paul makes it very clear. The veil will be removed and he'll see Christ as his Savior. And my friend, that's true of any sinner today. And you're not lost because you haven't heard the gospel. You're not lost 
because of this, that, or another thing. You are lost because you've made a definite decision to reject Jesus Christ. You see, this idea today that somehow or another you and I are not responsible, you and I, though it's by grace, you and I are responsible to respond to the marvelous, infinite, wonderful grace of God. And God saves us then not because of our ability and not even by our faith, but he saves us by the precious blood of Christ. Now, verse 11 here of chapter 12. In that day, aren't you getting just a little tired of hearing him talk about in that day? Well, you haven't heard anything yet all the way through to the very last chapter and last verse of Zechariah, he's going to talk about in that day. And by now, we ought to know what in that day means. It's that period of time when the church leaves at the rapture and the great tribulation begins, and then it will continue right on through the millennial kingdom and the time that all rebellion is put down and the eternal kingdom begins. And that kingdom just continues, the thousand-year kingdom, except it's not a testing time at all. And everything is fixed then for eternity. Now I continue on. In that day, there shall be a great mourning in Jerusalem. This is the real day of atonement. That's the only day that they were to weep. God told them on that day. And that's the day that atonement was made for their sin. In that day shall there be a great mourning in Jerusalem. And my friend, may I just pause to say this, because it's so important to say it. There is today a great deal of so-called gospel preaching that says, come to Jesus, he's going to make you over, and you're going to be a new personality, and you're going to be able to attain your goal, and all attractions are offered to you. May I say to you, what do you really think about your sins? Have you ever mourned about them? Has it ever broken your heart that you've been a sinner? Oh, my friend, that is the one thing that this poor preacher here right now can say to you. When I look back upon my life and see some of the things that I did in the past, I tell you, it breaks my heart. It's for that that my Savior died. And there ought to be that in the Christian life. The one thing that is missing today, it used to take place at the old Methodist altars in the old day. And I've seen it in, in those meetings when men and women would come weeping down to the altar and accept Christ. I see very little of that today. They come down smiling, you know. They're going to get a new personality my friend, you're an old, rotten, dirty, filthy sinner in his sight, and even your good things are bad to him. He says our righteousness is filthy rags in his sight. And if my righteousness is filthy rags, you ought to see what the filthy rags are. May I say to you, if you and I could see ourselves as God sees us, we couldn't stand ourselves. We'd get rid of this conceit today and this self-sufficiency that we have. Oh, how the church needs, and may I say this carefully, it needs a real baptism of repentance. That is the thing that is needed today. Repentance 
on the part of believers repenting of their sins. Verse 11, "...in that day shall there be a great mourning in Jerusalem as the mourning of..." The way this is given to us here, pronunciation is Hadrimon, but it could be Hadadrimon, and either one is accurate. It's so into how the word is divided in your translation. And it refers back to the valley of Megiddo and to the time of Josiah. Josiah was greatly loved by the people. And when he died, why, there was great mourning for him. Jeremiah wept over him as he wept over no one else. Verse 12, "...and the land shall mourn every family apart, the family of the house of David apart, their wives apart." the family of the house of Nathan apart and their wives apart. This is something many of us even today need to do privately. The family of the house of Levi apart and their wives apart. The family of Shimei apart and their wives apart. All the families that remain, every family apart and their wives apart. A real mourning. What great sin have they committed? They had rejected their Messiah when he came the first time. Think what it's going to be when he comes the second time and those that have heard the gospel message and have turned it down. May I say to you, that day is coming on this earth. Today, if you'll hear his voice, harden not your heart. Open up your heart and receive Christ as your Savior. 